Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. This is episode number 64 of the Gateworld Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm David. And this is the show where two minutes talk about Stargate. We're back on Stargate Universe. Have we ever left it since we started? I certainly haven't. I've been thinking about it nonstop since last week <laughs> when we watched the pilot. <laughs> no, actually, I watched the pilot about two days ago. We're talking about Air Part 3, which aired last Friday on Sci-Fi Channel. This is the wrap-up of the big three-part series premiere for Stargate Universe. So I hope that people checked it out, and I hope that people watched past Part 1 and 2. Because I think Part 3 is a better episode. I think the pace is quicker in it. It doesn't feel so drawn out. They were originally planning on having the pilot be two episodes, and then they extended it into three and you can tell that the pacing in part two suffered because of that decision. At least I could. So part three definitely is um, an alien planet. You know, a lot of money went into this part. It's connected, obviously, to the problem that was set up in part two. We've got to get some stuff to fix the air filtration system. It's more of a self-contained story. It's more of a, a typical go-through-the-gate, we-need-to-find-something-on-an-alien-planet uh, adventure for the the show. Mm-hmm. With a new cast. So overall impressions, thumbs up, thumbs sideways, thumbs down. Thumbs up. Yeah, I really felt like it was a good start last week, the two-hour premiere, but it was kind of slow at parts, obviously. It didn't wow us. It, it didn't wow us. That's what we said at the end of last week's show. So uh, part three is getting there. Part three is, yeah. uh, this is this is now a show that, especially after this cool little cliffhanger finale that, that we'll talk about towards the end of the show... This is a show that I'm excited about watching next Friday. It is proving that it is a different Stargate and yet the same universe. Nine fresh faces, not all of them of college age. No, this is, it's, I didn't notice that at all. I didn't see that they were making them. The 90210, who's sleeping with you storyline. As the Stargate turns. Yeah. If you consider character development to be as the Stargate turns, then yes, sure. But, you know, if you have an open mind about it and are willing to be engaged by the product, I think you may enjoy yourself. There is a bit of stuff going on. We talked about Lieutenant Scott's character, uh, played by Brian J. Smith, mm. a bit last week. And, and he's he seems to be the character who's more at the forefront in this episode. I think that Air Part 3 is, if it's anybody's episode, it's Lieutenant Scott's episode. Mm-hmm. And for him, I mean, he's a, he's a young guy, pretty fresh out of training. It is partly about who he's sleeping with and who he's falling for and who's falling for him, but not in a soapy way, but in an interesting character development way, which I want to talk about. But, you know, the first thing that jumps out, obviously, in this episode is the visuals. They, they shot all the desert stuff in White Sands, New Mexico, which I think is only the second time that Stargate has filmed in the United States uh, since the feature film. Vegas for Vegas. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. There may have been something else, but I doubt it. Yeah. I don't think so. I was expecting some white sands. I was not expecting nearly this much. I was not expecting basically the entire episode. Yeah. And I thought it was beautiful. I think they filmed the submarine stuff in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. But anyway, it was gorgeous. In both Arc of Truth and Continuum, when when they had those scenic views, they spent a lot of time in helicopter shots, after helicopter shot, after helicopter shot. And it felt like, you know, Peter Jackson should be directing this episode. You know, it it felt very much like, you know, we're here, so let's get the bang for our buck and do as much helicopter shot, as visual establishment, wow, beautiful, as we can. Mm-hmm. 
say, to say nothing of the fact that it is is gorgeous, it's like, okay, so when are Gimli and Aragorn and Legolas going to run across the screen? There wasn't as much in this episode. There were definitely helicopter shots. There were There was some of that, but it didn't feel like it was fade after fade after yeah. fade. And can we please get on with the story? Yeah, the helicopter shot montage. Exactly. It was very well balanced, I thought. So the, the scenes, I mean, they're beautiful. They were beautiful scenes. It felt very much like an alien planet that was not in our galaxy. As we all know, the Milky Way galaxy is incredibly forested. It looks yeah. a whole lot like Vancouver, British Columbia. Yeah. And the producers very wisely wanted a different look and a different feel for the, the off-world stuff for SGU. And this is this one's out of the park, I think. Not only because it's so it's so gorgeous and makes such a, a stark contrast to what we've seen uh, mm-hmm. with all the forest stuff. This has a Stargate movie vibe for me. This kind of felt like, like the original team on Abydos. Visually, and also the fact that they are out there without a safety net. If you know what I mean by that. I'm thinking that they are cut off. Yeah, they don't really have a fallback. Life support is running out on the Destiny. Whereas for years and years, SG-1 in Atlantis, there was always a support network. Stargate Command and Earth and the city of Atlantis. When you're outdoors, you you only have so many environments on Earth. And sand is definitely the one that we haven't seen as much on the show. Snow, obviously, we're going to see some of that later on in this in this show. That's likely going to be done on sound stages. I'd love to see some really otherworldly planets where you have alien trees and just a totally different kind of concept. Uh, but that's expensive to do. I think this was the first time on Stargate that I heard the team going through the gate actually referred to as the away team. Really? Did you catch that? No. The away team is... I think it, I think it might have been Telford who says the away team is our top priority. Or maybe it was Rush before they left. But I thought that was funny. So what do you think about these, these characters, people who go through? It's, you know, we haven't gotten to know everybody yet. We have a large main cast. So for the first time in a long time, the team that went through the gate, to me, really felt like... I don't know who the red shirts are. We might lose one of these guys. There are several red shirts potentials in the group. And I think we lose a couple people. I think, the, doesn't the Destiny go back into warp at the end? It does. When a couple of people get cut off? As soon as they come through, uh, the Destiny jumps back to FTL, and the characters' names are Curtis and Palmer. Palmer was that long-haired, blonde geologist, yes. and Curtis was the military guy who was escorting them. And, uh, yeah, they went through the gate to a different address to try and find another place for everybody to evacuate if they couldn't find a way to to uh, repair the air system on the Destiny. And there's a scene of Eli dialing that planet uh, apparently multiple times and trying to radio them, and he's not able to even reach them on the radio. Uh, but the indication is that it's six hours that the Destiny could have tried to dial that planet, sent them another remote, sent a Kino over there, and we don't know if they tried any of that, but apparently these guys are gone. They got left behind. I knew that that was going to happen at some point with someone. Well, yeah, as soon as they introduce that ticking clock, uh-huh. that someone is going to, to have show, to get left behind. Yeah, the Destiny is on a pre-programmed course that we cannot change, and when that clock reaches zero, it's moving on, and you better be on board. You know that they've got to establish that by losing a couple people. I have been bitching and moaning and complaining all through Atlantis that there was never a, a location gate, a full location gate yep. for establishing shots and just to play a character in the very background. 
I got my wish. Oh, they yeah. have a location gate, and, and they it is use awesome. It. it is gorgeous. It, it spins. Is absolutely go- it spins. Spinning is so much cooler than not spinning. <laughs> yeah, the Atlantis quote-unquote location gate. Every time we saw the Stargate on an alien planet, was a, a visual effect, and it's I don't know a why. Locked static shot. It was locked static. It seemed like and you'd never say it again. Nine times out of ten, it was head-on, facing the front of the Stargate, so it was actually two-dimensional. But yeah, this gate, this gate's beautiful. And I love this new little piece of technology that instead of having to plant a DHD there, the Destiny now has these little remote DHDs. Mm-hmm. They power the Kinos, they can follow the Kinos around, it's the remote control for the Kino, but then it also has a little computer you can look through the other, the other uh, Stargate locations and whatever galaxy you're in. You can dial back to the Destiny. What about the Quantum Leap aspect of this show? I loved Quantum Leap. I loved the body swapping. When Sam was in someone else, someone else was in him in the mm-hmm. waiting room back in 1999. And you know, that, that that happens in this show. We see body swapping. Colonel Young awakes to find himself trapped on Earth, facing yep. a mirror image that is not his own. His only God on this journey is no one. An observer from his own time. <laughs> this is going to be something for us to talk about as the show goes on, because they're going to yeah. use the communication stones a lot and do a lot of body swapping back on Earth to get our characters visiting home and getting people from Earth onto the Destiny. Um, I really is... felt it was a cheat at first. When I first heard about this, what? Well, we're going to yeah. be so far out and we're going to be able to talk with Earth whenever? Exactly. That was the way the show was originally conceived, was without this this element. It was absolutely cut off from Earth. I think it was during Season 4 of Atlantis that we heard that, uh, maybe it was Season 5, that they basically decided that they could bring along communication stones and have that be a regular element of the show. Mm. So we're far, far away and can't get home, yet you're just a phone call away from your loved ones, in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I really didn't care for it, like I said, when, when I was first hearing about it. But this episode shows how it works, and I like it. Mm. You know, There's information exchange, but that's all. There are no exchanges of supplies Earth is made aware of the situation, loved ones are notified, and that's it. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that develops over the course of this season. Who is in control of the stones? Information Mm -hmm. control is is going to be a big thing on the ship, I hope. Like on on Lost, the two big questions for me when I watch Lost are, okay, who has the guns right now? And who knows what information? Scott says, you know, conserve your lights because when they're dead, they're dead. Still looking to see what's in those ancient crates. Apparently, they're scouring it, looking for mm-hmm. something that they can use to replace the uh, mm-hmm. whatever it was, calcium carbonate for the the air filtration system. In in a lot of ways, SG One and Atlantis have been easy to talk about because the episodes are, are pretty straightforward. Here, there there are much more much more in the way of small details. I think for us mm-hmm. to pay much closer attention to and try and pick up on, mm-hmm. which we also need some awesome listeners to watch and pick up on it and call in. Yes, give us your theories. Yeah, this use of the communication stones, I think um, I think is really going to be interesting. I think there's a whole lot of cool sci-fi storytelling. Well, there's cool sci-fi and then there's also interesting compelling science fiction. Mm-hmm. Those two things are, are kind of two different fronts. But uh, there's some, some really nice possibilities here for characters, uh, mm. especially with loved ones back home. Chloe gets to visit her mom in yes. this case. But then I also think that this this plot device is something that is potentially a bit risky. It's in a sense, it's almost like a holodeck. And when you use the holodeck device too many times, the audience 
starts to roll their eyes. You know, I certainly was by the time Voyager was having Fairhaven running 24-7. And having problems. Every season there's one or two holodeck gone wrong episodes. So it seems like maybe the communication stones as a plot device is a bit of a fine line to walk, perhaps. We saw Homeworld Security and O'Neill's desk. Yeah, Jack's new office. Young spoke through Telford. TJ had to knock him Mm -hmm. out. That was pretty good. That was a nice moment for TJ. I loved that Rick was involved in this pilot, and I'm looking forward to seeing him involved again. I'd love to see him use the stone and go to the Destiny, but it's just enough right now, and you have this line marked here. None of us are qualified. He hasn't mentioned that first Stargate mission in years, yeah. in years and years and years, and they brought it up, and I was like, you know, that's that's a good tip of the hat. It's a really nice callback. He's he's having this conversation in his office with Colonel Young. Young's basically saying, these people are not qualified to be there. They're the wrong people. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And Jack says, you know, when you really get down to it, we are 21st century humans, uh, military personnel and civilians going through a ancient piece of technology to travel to other planets and fight mm-hmm. interstellar aliens. None mm-hmm. of us are qualified to be doing this. You just, yeah. you do the best you can. Speaking of aliens, well, that's, I, I, I think you can safely say that it's that it's a life form, that it was a life form on uh, the desert world. The visual effects were spectacular, in, including the creature. For the little sandstorm? The little dust devil, or the magical sparkly dust devil, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, I was impressed with yeah. with how well it was pulled off. Well, I, I had to wonder how much of it was a practical effect that they got a swirling going on the desert on site and how much of it was, was visual effects. Computer generated, I don't know, because it just looked that good. And to, to start the show off with a, with a benevolent intelligent life form, it was a nice touch. Yeah. You suggested that it was leading Scott. He was following it. That's the impression that I got was that was that it was sort of intuiting what it was that they needed and was leading Scott to uh-huh. it, and eventually, either either showing it to him because he had stumbled right onto it and passed out, or, or creating it. You suggested to me the idea that maybe it created the lime bed there because that water just appeared, and then all of a sudden we pull back and there it is. Yeah. So I don't know if they were if it was just trying to get him conscious again, say wake up, wake up, you don't have a lot of time or what. I think that's an interesting idea that that I mean he didn't take much. He just he just shoveled some scoopfuls from that immediate area into his bag. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting idea that it actually physically created the lime that he needed. I love that we have ideas that we can talk about again. I love that <laughs> yeah. it's not just did Ford make it or did he not? There are so many questions in these mm-hmm. episodes. Different that go ways of interpreting what happened. Exactly. It's good stuff. I love that. Isn't it nice? <laughs> yeah. Thinking about alien life forms, I remember a conversation that we had with Brad uh, a, a year at least, year and a half before the mm-hmm. show got was greenlit. And he said, We want this to be a bigger budget show. We're asking for more money. And my first thought was less human beings as aliens. If we are really outside of the Pegasus yeah. and Milky Way galaxies where the ancients have have seeded human life, human form life, then we need to see more alien aliens. Not more... necessarily bipedal, two arms, two legs. Yeah, but even bipedal, two arms, two legs, you know, thinking about the aliens that Todd Masters' team has created... Full prosthetic stuff is what I was expecting. More aliens that are full prosthetics. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, what they were thinking. 
when they said aliens that are unlike the aliens that we've encountered. This little dust storm guy seems to be an alien life form that is totally unlike any kind of life we've seen before. When you have a class M planet, when you, when you have gravity and oxygen-nitrogen specifications, certain creatures are going to come out of that, I would think. You're not going to have a floating amoeba that, that speaks whale and have that go well on a planet that you can physically visit. So I'm hoping that these, these outfits that are going to be coming into play later on in the show will allow us to visit worlds that are very much different from our own and can support different kinds of life. I was also interested with uh, the number that there were five Stargate addresses. Presumably when the Destiny arrives in a galaxy, it has a seven Chevron address that it can dial to any and all of the Stargates that the other ships have placed in that particular galaxy. So you're saying that there are only five Stargates in that galaxy? That's what I'm thinking, is is however many ships are out there seeding Stargates ahead of the Destiny, there are apparently five Stargates located in this entire galaxy. That just interests me. I only took it that there were only five Stargates in range. I mean, we don't know how much power this ship has. We don't know what kind of range it has. Well, what's range? Where it is. I mean, as far as we know from the past 12 years... Uh, any seven Chevron Stargate address dials yeah. somewhere in our galaxy, and it's not necessarily doesn't require extra power to go a few more. All I'm saying is we don't know how much years. power this ship has. We don't know how many ZPMs it has. Please tell me that it doesn't run on ZPMs. <laughs> we don't know what its power requirements are. We don't have any idea. So yeah, there's five Stargate addresses. The ship picks one of them because the ship seems to know which one has what will meet the need. The others have been locked out. Now, do you think that the ship locked out the others because they were determined to be dangerous by the data that it had received from the other ships, or because it just knew that this one planet had what they needed and they shouldn't be distracted by searching those other ones? According to the dialogue from Rush, I think it was in part two, the ships that went ahead seeded Stargates on worlds that could support life. Yep. So I suspect that it took the nine separate searches, I believe it was, that he was making and correlated them into a search that the Destiny was doing on its own. Mm -hmm. And when it found a world that one of those ships had sent specifications back to the Destiny, this world has this, this world has this, these compounds, these compounds, it told them that they had to go to this one in order to get what they needed. That's how I took it. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking is it didn't lock out those other four addresses because there's necessarily anything wrong or dangerous with those worlds. It was just trying to keep them on task. But at the same time, Palmer and whoever it was, they didn't answer their radios. And I was always expecting at the very end of the episode, yeah. I was kind of hoping we would cut to them when they were getting to that planet and a T-Rex would have come and eaten them. We talked at the end of last week's show about this idea of the Destiny as, as a 10th character. And that Rush seems to be developing this relationship with it, and that, that was certainly the case again in Part 3. He's, he's saying, we've got to go to this address, this is the mm -hmm. one, the ship knows what it's doing. But uh, Rush has got some other relationships going on in this episode. Rush versus Greer. Rush v. Greer get into a big, old-fashioned throwdown. I found it very interesting. I found it uh, because Rush has so far come across as... Very Machiavellian. He's been compared to Baltar on Battlestar. Baltar yeah. was all about survival. Baltar was all about himself. How can I manipulate people in order to survive? That's not what Rush is doing. Rush got ticked off, I think, by Greer, calling him basically a, a pampered rich boy, and turned on him. You know, you don't go after this psychopath 
like he did and get in his face and try and take his water bottle. That was uh, not the way to survive, but it was in, another insight into Rush's character. And that Greer just wasn't going to put up with it. You want to stay here and die? Go ahead. Yeah, it was like he was trying to uh, stand up to the bully and give yeah. the bully a bloody nose, and it didn't really work out so well for him. Because <laughs> the bully was not a coward hiding yeah. behind his, his muscles. The bully was not going to back down in this case. I'm really interested to see what Greer's story is. I hope it's good. And, and clearly Ming-Na's character believes that uh, he was he was confined for a legitimate reason. Did you notice when they got back to the ship, huffing and puffing and hot, and give me water, give me water, give me water, and uh, Riley says, well, there goes my day's ration. When uh, they ask what happened to Franklin, yeah. when they came through and asked what happened to him, Rush said, Greer shot him. No explanation, no context, no, you know, he got shot. It was Greer shot him. But Greer did shoot him, didn't he? He did. I mean, it's, ab- it's absolutely true, but I think that the way he said it was still a manipulative thing to do. Yeah. Potentially trying to instill fear in other people about Greer. Speak as if he, Rush himself, didn't have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Scott's journey. You were saying that the sex scene in part one was kind of redeemed in this episode. I think it was. The sex scene kind of bothered me in part one. Yes, I am a bit of a prude. A bit? (laughs) I thought that, uh, you know, I like it as much as the next red-blooded young man. It was kind of funny coming right after the last Stargate that we saw was Children of the Gods Final Cut. Yeah. In which Brad took out the nudity. nudity. Left in the rape, the violation of Share by the Gould. Uh, which obviously was a major part of the story and needed to be there. But uh, he took it out because SG-1 is a family show, and there's a sex scene in Stargate Universe, because I I think that Stargate Universe is not intended to necessarily be a family show. Not a 10 and under or 12 and under watch it at 8 p.m. It's more of a a grown-up, you know, 15 plus, 16 plus, 10 p.m. show, Mm -hmm. even though it's actually airing at 9. Well, give us your theory. About about Scott from from the scenes that we got, you know, we we saw his his priest who raised him and died of alcoholism and his backstory, the, the, what he talks about while he's at the parish. Yeah, we saw the sex scene and and you and I kind of went, nah, ah. I don't think that was really necessary. You know, I felt like it was redeemed because they seem to be portraying Matthew Scott. I wonder, uh, we'll certainly see more in the future. I think as potentially as someone who is struggling with sexual addictions. We see him uh, talking with his his priest, who was his surrogate father, uh, in the flashback. He's talking about having gotten a girl pregnant, and, you know, I'm I'm weak, and it's not your fault, it's my fault, and he's, he's really, you know, beating himself up about this. I think that that's fascinating. If it turns out to be the case that this character is uh, a character who has sexual addictions that he feels uh, remorse about uh, because it doesn't line up with his... Uh, his beliefs. His beliefs, his spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs, whatever. Um, he seems to be a, a Christian guy. He still wears a cross necklace, mm-hmm. which you can see in the last scene in his quarters with Chloe. So, um, you know, I wonder. I wonder if this is a conservative Christian guy who, who potentially... Uh, is a sex addict and is struggling with that. If that's the case, then I think it makes that sex scene in part one very significant. It makes his mm-hmm. sexual relationship with Vanessa James very significant. Mm-hmm. But if he's going in this direction with Chloe just to get into her pants, if he's not fighting that, 
right. then that makes him a very amoral person. But if, if he is fighting that and he's struggling with that and he calls upon her to help him <laughs> not get into her pants, but to, to help him find confidence in himself and to help him set him on the right path, then who knows? His interest in her, I think, may be more of a, I don't know, love than a lust. Mm-hmm. You might say he may be looking to her for, for something other than just that. Relief. But it's interesting, you know, if, if that's the case, if that is really what the producers are doing with this character, I will be hugely impressed, because I have never seen that issue tackled on television. I, I've seen movies where, you know, they joke about it. The only time I remember seeing the issue even come up was in the later years, maybe even the last season of Cheers. Sam, uh-huh. Sam was always a player, and, and he was he was yes. treated for sex addiction towards the end of the show's run, and it was, I think it was largely played for laughs. Yeah, well, it's, that's a comedy. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what's going to come of this character. Uh, he's someone that I'm starting to root for. And the other one that I was rooting for before the end of this episode was Greer. He has attitude, and I like it. <laughs> <laughs> he carries it very well. I mean, the dude, to borrow from Harry Potter 5, you may not like him, but you got to admit, Greer's got style. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. I think you said that before in our last show. It's true, though. You know, I don't think that I would like Greer at this point if it wasn't for his relationship with Lieutenant Scott. They've got a respect for one another as mm-hmm. as fellow servicemen and a friendship. The fact that Greer basically risked his life and went back. He yes. went back to find him. That I, I have huge respect for. I don't and think he would have done it for Rush. No, he certainly would not have done it for Rush, but that helped the character to turn a corner for me because, yeah, we want him to be... A loose cannon. Loose cannon and dangerous, but he's also got to have solid, positive relationships with some mm-hmm. people. And it's it's going to be young military guys like Scott that he's going to have those relationships with. It totally works. But uh, if they had not had that in this episode, I think I'd probably not really like Greer so much right now. Mm-hmm. But they did. They and you did. do. He reminds me somewhat of Ronan Dex, but it doesn't occur to me just by watching him. I think they wanted someone who you would definitely be a little leery around when he's holding a gun mm-hmm. and you don't want to cross him. And he doesn't just hate Rafe. <laughs> yeah, Ronan would, would kill you if you betrayed him yeah. like he did with his old uh, military leader in Trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greer's the kind of guy who you think might kill you if you just piss him off a little. Yeah, and there's no one around to stop him. Yeah, He might make you disappear. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the B-plot? The the B story, other than Young going back and, and having a little bit of a debrief with O'Neill, is Chloe, in uh, another scientist's body, goes home and talks to her mom. And then her mom turns around, and her mom's a mess. Obviously, she just found out that her husband died. Chloe told us in the last episode that, that Senator Armstrong was her mom's whole world. So she's she's grieving, she's freaking out. Mm-hmm. But she threatens to expose the Stargate program if they don't bring Chloe home safe. I hope that something becomes that. I think that that would be really fascinating. But, you know, that's that's an empty thread after 13 years of television. But I hope not. It was I nice hope. to hear, at least. I like the actress, though. We should say that uh, Stargate fans might recognize that actress who plays Chloe's mom, Anna Galvin. Possibly the only actor... Other than our recurring Richard Dean Anderson, Amanda Tapping, Michael Shanks, uh, and I guess Bill Dow, who's done all three Stargate shows. She's done all three? Anna Galvin was Rhea in Collateral Damage in season nine of SG-1. Ah, yes! Yeah, she was the gal that Mitchell was accused of killing. Yep. And then in Atlantis, 
season five, she was the uh, alien love interest for Woolsey in Remnants. That's right. So she's done three, all three series now. No, Anna Grower. Anna Grower has done all three shows too. Oh, you're right. You're right. The same character in the first two. Yeah, and so is Gary Jones. Just a nod. I mean, Bill and Harriman just had the smallest little scenes, but you know they they bring them in, and that's that's all for us continuity nerds saying yes, this is the same universe. Mm-hmm. This would be probably the same people, uh, aside from the fact that Marks seems to serve on any Daedalus class ship that that gets our attention. Yeah, Major Marks um, hops around a lot. He hops around a lot. They they deleted Kirby Morrow. They deleted Kirby Morrow from the Daedalus bridge, and they brought Marks in. Which I felt wasn't very fair, but I can I can see Carter handpicking Marks because she served with him a lot. So I, I I buy that he's aboard the Hammond for that reason. Yeah, either that or they've got something going on. But um... <laughs> you know the other thing that I wanted to say about the ancient communication stones that we didn't touch on last week was that Earth seems to have sort of reverse engineered these. The stones might be the same, but the pedestal is gone, and we have this cool little yeah white, little light box data pad. Now. Yeah, I hope it has a lot of power. I like that a lot better. I thought that the big, great, big, huge terminal that we first saw in Avalon was just fugly. They've obviously reverse engineered that. Yeah. So, and they just sit the little pad on there, and there are five stones. So I imagine five people can be communicating at the same time. I love the ending of the episode, and I love the use of contemporary music. This, mm-hmm. uh, this song, I don't know the title, I don't know the artist. I didn't like the song, but I liked what they were doing. I liked it a lot. I like the sound. It, it reminds me of some of my other favorite shows that uh, use music in that way, like Defying Gravity. So mm. it's a nice little mood. So we've got this, this nice little closure scene between Chloe and, and Matt Scott, and then the camera mm-hmm. pulls out, pull out through the window. And you think it's over. You, you think it's over. You think that you're about to see executive producer Brad Wright and Robert C. Cooper, but instead, bink, there's this little ship that detaches from the destiny and peels off and you go what the (laughs) i didn't know if it was one of their shuttles or if it was an alien ship who had dropped someone off or who was leaving well what did you think i'm thinking that someone got dropped off and is now aboard um so it was not a destiny shuttlecraft it was an alien ship that hopped on and has left that's what i'm that's what i'm thinking that would be interesting. Um, what do you think? Um, the first time I watched it, I'm thinking, wait, how many shuttles did they say they had? I think they two. had two shuttles. One of them is broken. One of them was, was the one that Senator Armstrong had to go into. Yeah. Uh, had that big gash in the side of it. So we basically have one shuttle. Did somebody just steal it yeah. and leave when the ship was traveling in FTL? There's There seems to be no way that that little ship could go and catch up to the destiny again if it's going into a different yeah. galaxy. Yeah, we don't know what kind of a speed this thing has. I mean, it's obviously faster than uh, than hyperspace, so some kind of a slipstream speed. So the second time I, I watched it, I looked at the area of the destiny that it mm-hmm. it detached from, and it did not seem to be any kind of a of a of an airlock or a place where a shuttle would land. It looked like a, a flat, clean surface like the ship was magnetically attached to. So I'm thinking it was an alien ship mm. that has been along for the ride. Cool. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to see where they take that next. Yep. And this, I really like the idea that maybe there are other races out there that uh, have the same sort of FTL travel and can, can keep track of and keep Keep up, Keep up with, with the, the ship. Destiny. I love that they are planting seeds, man. They are planting seeds left and right. I mean, they yeah. they they introduce twenty questions and they answer ten. 
So this is really good. This is this is a good intro. I must say I owe you one dollar. Uh, Telford did not die. Telford's alive. Telford's alive. He got drugged. But yep, none of the main alive. casts were knocked off before. And the end he of this. is coming back. Yeah, Armstrong was was the one who got the prominent actor who got booted. So it's a bit of a cheat in the pilot. I mean, in in the in the first trailer that uh, Telford said we're all gonna die out here. He's not even there. <laughs> it's time for quibbles. So as we talked about last week, our new quibbles section is where we go really, really nerdy and talk about uh, nitpicking, about little details that the casual fan doesn't care about. But hey, you're listening to the Gate World Podcast. You're not a casual fan. That's right. You're awesome. Uh, I want to know, as we spoke about briefly in the main discussion, why didn't we hear anything from or about... Uh, Curtis and Palmer, the two people who got left behind. We got the mm-hmm. indication that there was about a six-hour window between the time that they went through to another planet and the Destiny had to leave. So Eli was trying to contact them, but I would think he's going to tell the Destiny, you know, these guys left, they went to this address, can you override the lockout and send them a remote? Can you mm-hmm. send through a Kino ball and see if they're alive? Can you, you know, spare another team and make sure that you get back before our team has to dial did they take a a remote with them well franklin had the remote he was he was taking it but he got shot and stayed behind and there was some line of dialogue about sending them another remote i think those three when they decided to go through might have been the ones who who said you know we'll send them another remote so they would have been stuck had franklin went through that's why uh, rush was saying shoot him because i don't want to get stuck on this planet Yep, not a good idea. I kind of like the fact that they're not tying up these things in little bows. Maybe we'll hear from Curtis and Palmer again in the future. Maybe we never, never, ever will. But it kind of makes it feel real and organic that they're just gone and we don't know what happened. Yes, but they need to make mention in the next episode, at least, that they're not there anymore. um, Because we're not sure. (laughs) Yeah. Next time we go off to to a planet, somebody might say, you know, don't make the same mistake that Curtis and Palmer did. Yeah. Get left behind. What does the ship use for fuel? How is it that it's able to travel for hundreds of thousands of years at faster than light speeds? Very, very fast speeds. And mm-hmm. Turning on and turning off. And, and what does it use for fuel? Does it use background radiation? I mean, that, imp- that is important to me at what, as to what propels this ship. Um, is it tilium? I mean, come on. Gerbils. Gerbils. Constantly a bunch of gerbils running reproducing below deck. gerbils. It would be um, interesting if it was ZPMs, but as we know from Atlantis, interesting in the sense that they're familiar, so we would say, oh, okay, yes, I realize that's an ancient power source. But as we know from Atlantis, ZPMs run out. Yes. And uh, Atlantis had three ZPMs that had to be manually rotated and very nearly ran out in just 10,000 years. So hundreds of thousands of years. It seems like it's got to be renewable, whatever it is. There are a lot of things about the Destiny that even though the ship is one of the oldest pieces of ancient architecture that we've ever encountered in ancient uh, ship designs, uh, it has a lot of very efficient things, like the Kino Ball. Uh, We never saw Atlantis Malps, so maybe they had Kinos too, but I don't think so. I think they would have come across that technology in the the time that they were there. That was something that was missing from Atlantis, I think. I think that Atlantis should have had its own form of Malp, and the Kino is just brilliant, in my opinion. It's perfect, man. How old was Matt Scott supposed to be in those flashbacks in the church? He looks obviously like Brian J. Smith <laughs> in his earlier mid-twenties. He, he got a girl pregnant, and then he said, you know, she's, she's 16. She's not going to keep it. 
So that made me think first that he was much older than the girl, that maybe this was when he was in college. Then later, we find out, he tells Chloe that the priest who raised him uh, drank himself to death when he was 16. So maybe, well, there you go. Maybe Scott was 16. Maybe he was 15 even. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he was supposed to be playing a young teenage kid. Version of himself. Yeah. I think, you know, if he drank himself to death when he was 16 and we're, we're not seeing a, a conversation with an alien but an actual flashback, yeah. then there's your answer. Yeah. That's what I'm assuming is that it's an actual flashback. It's not the dust storm having a conversation with him. If it was a matter of a person being inside the shuttle and pushing a button to close the hatch, why didn't they send Aquino in to do it? Hmm. And just do it by remote? Yes. Yeah, because the way that it looks, it seems like you're pushing a button. Yep. And, and I don't know, maybe holding it down. I thought of the little water toy that Homer Simpson used to push the button oh, the, on the his... Oh, the beaker? Yeah, with the nose. <laughs> with the nose that he used to, when he stepped out of his office, he used to, to keep pushing the, the button on his keyboard. Over and over again. Yes, yes, yes. I thought, if we had one of those on the Destiny, we could use that to push the button. Ah, uh, geez. Yeah, I think um, I think an alien. I think the Nostromo had one. In fact, I know it did. I always thought that was clever. Well, this is a good argument for taking those into space from now on. Yeah. NASA, take note. <laughs> well, last week we had this conversation about whether there was going to be a fight over the stones because Rush had come back and told everybody that O'Neill put him in charge, and we thought he was lying. Some version of that wasn't true. O'Neill would have told Young when he talked with him. Yeah, so my last quibble is, what's going on? Young must have had this conversation. Did you really put Rush in charge, or is he just full of crap? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we didn't we didn't hear that. Mm-hmm. So maybe it took place off camera. Maybe it's something that they're holding Deleted. for the future. There's there's obviously more confrontation coming between Young and Rush over who's in charge of the ship. I called BS on Rush, and we we didn't see it when Young went back to Earth this time. I, I was surprised about that. I was expecting to see something uh, of that develop. Listener mail. Hello, this is Carl from Hawaii. And I just wanted to let you guys know that um, I was not even a fan of the original series or Atlantis, but uh, I like SGU. It's uh, much much different than the original two uh, TV shows. Hi, this is Strice. I'm calling from Reno, Nevada, where uh, unlike our Vegas counterparts, we're race-free. In uh, regards to your guys' commentation about uh, how the destiny knows when it's being dialed, um, something that I thought was a little odd is I was kind of under the impression that uh, ships that have stargates on them moving at faster than light speeds are not able to dial or receive wormholes. Um, you're, you're traveling pretty quick there. And my sense of that opening scene on there was that Destiny actually came to a stop because it picked up a wormhole, was trying to dial it, um, came to a stop and then started up the life support, sort of like what Atlantis did when the, they first got there in Rising. Hi, this is uh, Chris from Fort Lauderdale. My biggest question going forward is, how did the Lucian Alliance find out about the base, and why in the world would they attack it? They can't gain anything from attacking the base. There's nothing there for them to have. I mean, they won't be able to figure out how to use what went there. They wouldn't even know what it is or how to get there. What is their motive for attacking the base? My hypothesis is that Rush leaked the information to them so that he can force everybody through the gate. Mr. J84, 
from North Carolina. I'm just calling after watching Stargate Universe, and I just felt the introduction of Eli into the setting was just a bit too convenient with the video game and then just beaming him up there. It just seemed like there's a quick way to get him involved without doing anything, and I think that was just cheap. They could have gone a different way than that. Hi, this is Carol from Dallas. I was prepared to give the show a couple of weeks before I would care about the characters, but I was not prepared for how much I disliked the pilot. Actually, I was shocked that I could dislike something with Stargate in the title. I gave Air Part 3 a chance because I hoped that SGU would find its way, and instead I thought I was watching a soap opera. I hate spoilers, so I avoided everything ahead of time. So I came into Air 1 and 2 totally clueless of who the characters were, by the end of the pilot, with the possible exception of Eli, I was happy for Earth and be rid of them all. You know, in SG-1 or Atlantis, these were all the bad guys. I still remember my breath being taken away by rising when Atlantis started. Of course, they had me on McKay. But everything Stargate, from the writers to now even the podcasts, has been hijacked by SGU. And I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to hold out hope. In the meantime, I am enjoying catching up on the old podcasts. And David, I enjoyed your stage time in Chicago. Sorry I walked out early because I think you were getting into spoilers and I was avoiding them. You're listening to the Gateworld Podcast. Well, that was a fun episode. That was off-world adventure with a team with a problem, self-contained story that dealt with the larger arc and gave us more insight into the characters. I liked Air Part 3. And next week, we're talking about Darkness. Part 1 of a two-parter, Darkness, airs this Friday on Sci-Fi Channel at 9 p.m. Also airs on Space in Canada. If you're in the U.K., you'll have to wait until Tuesday and watch it on Sky 1. So call in... And tell us what you think of this week's new episode. Again, Darkness, if you're going to write in, please write something uh, down and submit it to Get World Form before Sunday is out. And uh, I've revised this from last week. If you're going to call us in, you can call us before Monday is out. Because Tuesday is when I do my editing for this show, generally. So it's Darkness on October 21st, and then our October 28th show, we'll talk about part two of that, which is titled Light. And then on November 4th, it is water. Well, that's the show. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail on the hotline, that number is 616-712-1647, or you can post over in the podcast feedback thread. If you are new listeners, new to the show, welcome. We are glad to have you. This show is just as much for you as it is for us, so uh, we're trying not to discouraging you by geeking out on previous episodes that you have no idea <laughs> Yeah. If you uh, hear us reference an episode title or a character or a species and you don't know what that is, just head over to GateWorld and look for the show notes for this show, and we'll provide links to all of that. So this is fun. I was looking forward to talking about the pilot, and I was looking forward to getting past the pilot and on into Season 1. So let's do it again next week. Let's. Let's.